0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: How many threads bring strangers together? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. We explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, James Grady, author of This Train, and then after the break, Jerry Stalled joins us to discuss his memoir, 999. He's the author of Six Days of the Condor, and he's here to discuss his new book, that we're talking about James Grady, This Train. Stephen Hunter, who I love, by the way. Oh, love the book. doesn't love Stephen? Yeah, so this, I'm quoting this, hopefully accurately, a cinematic thriller racing through the heartland of our America now. And James Grady, Larry Davidson here, welcome to the podcast thank you for having me so this is so timely because i drive out from where i live to the studio here in suffolk county at the library station public library which is the best library on long island by the way and the best podcast studio on long island so i i like to listen to podcasts when i drive it makes the drive a little bit easier so i am listening to something called on the wall with dana carvey and david spade both from saturday night live and one of them says, and I forget because it was very loud because I had the windows down because it was hot. He says, I just got off a plane and the movie on the plane was Three Days of the Condor. <laughs> so I, so my question to you is, how does your book Six Days of the Condor get in, cut in half and become the movie Three Days of the Condor?
2: The difference there is, you know, you're working. We're, we're all working now in multiple mediums. We're, we're in a podcast. We're talking about books. And we're also mentioning movies. When they came to make the movie adaptation of my novel back in 1973, right? They cut. They, they raced it as uh, at thriller speed. Then counted how many days they had, and they had three. As Sidney Pollack uh, told me. You know, that was good because I couldn't show Robert Redford with a four-day beard growth and still have (laughs) the hero we all
1: wanted. Well, every author says when they uh, buy the book or option the book, you turn over to them, and that's what it, whatever it turns out to be. you Hopefully, you got paid well for it, but it's, their, it's in their hands. You just kind of got let go like sending a kid off to college. They got to go leave, lit and leave their lives. So it's, it's not an unusual story, but a lot of writers say, I wrote this great book, and look what they did to it. But it got made, and uh, the guy watching on the plane, one of the comedians, loved it. So kudos to you and, and both the movie people.
2: I am one of the luckiest authors you're ever going to have on this show who's had a, uh, a short story or a book or even just an idea turned into a movie. What Sidney Pollack and, and, and Robert Redford did was they created a masterpiece of Americana out of a it's it's hard to imagine this i was 24 years old and this was my first novel i to watch them turn it into that masterpiece i i I get i get chills to this
1: day it's just i i'm so lucky so let me name drop somebody else who i have six degrees of separation with because I end up doing something with his granddaughter years later and that's woody guthrie and of course, Woody Guthrie, this train is bound for glory, this train. So the obvious question is, because I'm not that great as an interviewer, in terms of your book, this train, where, they, where is it bound for? Well, it's, it's,
2: it's carrying all And First of all, I hope it was Sarah Lee Guthrie. That yes. You got. Yeah, I Sarah did. Lee is, is an extraordinary woman. She and I are also friends and okay. been for a long time. This train, my novel, which you know clearly inspired by by a lot of other artists uh including woody including bruce springsteen who i think is the great american author of my generation this train my novel is about all of us headed through these times we are now i wanted to write about the americans out there who often don't get covered And I realized the way to do it and the way to deal with things like global warming and uh, all sorts of other issues was to swirl all those things into a thriller where where there's a racing ticking clock engine of wild and crazy events taking the reader from word one until the end
1: so there was some hope i'm a big movie fan and this movie became a terrific tv series called snow piercer are you familiar with that movie snow piercer was one of those movies you go
2: to and you see and you walk out with your your worldview changed i thought it was incredibly brilliant I also, you know, it was really kind of brave for them to make it because what they're saying in that movie and eventually in the TV series is mankind is screwing itself. And I don't want that message to be true. I I, I want us to to do better. I want us to improve where we are and more importantly, where we are going. But Snowpiercer, whoo!
1: I know. I when I saw it and I saw it in a little theater uh, in New York City. So it's a unique experience in a little theater, and it just blew me away. So when it became a TV series, was, of course they have to add on stuff that wasn't in the movie. Right. It's right. it's great TV making. It really is the storylines, the the class of cultures and economic stratus and rebellion and revolt. It is so well done. It just it just and it it mirrors realities we've
2: all witnessed and been part of that's what I think is a, is a key to, to, to good drama that's one of the things I was trying to, to do with this strain and even with all my other fictions I want to mirror our lives even if I'm writing about you know five crazy spies who've escaped from the CIA secret in asylum I want to i want to give the reader the feeling that 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 they matter that that their lives are important that what they've seen and what they felt counts and here's here's an exciting you know thrilling way to look at it
1: so this is the podcast artful periscope i'm larry davidson my guest is james great his book is called this train i don't know if you ever heard of colin harrison a great writer who wrote a vander room a big editor at scribner i believe i don't know if he's still there yes. or not yes. he, he once said to me if there is a blonde smoking a cigarette in a hotel lobby that's trouble on your train you have a woman, I think, kind of has red hair. And it's another woman. I don't want to have any spoiler alerts. But both of these women, quote, unquote, are really going to be trouble.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a there's a very famous Dashiell Hammett quote that says, all you need for a good novel is is a dame. I, and I'm going to use his language. Right. A dame and a gun. And what you need to do is, is when there's a when there's a problem with your plot is have again have a dame with a gun walk in and it's just people with trouble are where we start all our good fictions it doesn't matter if it's if it's hamlet going back to reclaim his family fortune and honor dealing with spies and ghosts which sounds like a stephen king novel to me right um or if it's, it's my book, This Train, where you see uh, a, a, a dozen, quote, regular Americans all coming together and trapped in a train, leading them to what they're
1: not sure is going to happen with their lives and their problems so here's two more movie references by the way because i think you write, i love movies, i think you way. write cinematically and also i think you have a little bit of james patterson you're very short quick uh chapters and a couple oh, are you. long got long elongated i'm thinking this is a movie that i loved a movie called nashville and i love that movie and i'll tell you why because it reminds me of what you try to do in your book and it was successful for me you're putting a lot of people together, and there's a lot of crosstalk all at once. And there's a scene in Nashville where everybody is in a room, and they're all talking at the same time, which was brilliant. And the other movie that comes to mind, was very successful, was the Titanic. And once again, you get a cross-section of society getting on the Titanic, not what, knowing what's going to happen. And it's the same thing. We sit down. I sit down and start to read the book. You're setting it up. But none of the characters really know quite what's going to happen, and the readers certainly don't know because you kind of bring us along, and then somewhere towards the back end in end the book, uh, quote unquote, there's kind of an explosion in terms of the narrative.
2: Oh yeah, and and I, I when you said Nashville, my heart my heart just warmed. I mean, Robert Altman, uh, who was the director of Nashville, was an extraordinary visionary and. That, that, that story about basically a bunch of people coming together trying to find where they are in these, these crazy American times touches everybody who sees it. It doesn't matter where you are. You could you be in Everett, Washington, or you could be in Tallahassee, Florida, and a, a, a movie like Titanic or nashville will bring you on board with it and that's exactly what i try to do with this train i want to bring everybody on and help them see
1: where we're all going and have a good time right on the way so your publisher will kill me if i don't kind of dive into the book the book is this train and it takes place on a train going from seattle washington to chicago It's 72 hours, I think it was. Was it 72? Oh, 47 (laughs) hours. So I transposed it. Thank you very much. That's why you're here. And you (laughs) you corrected my mistake because I'm not even good with time, but I do get here on time for the podcast. So 47 hours take place. And what I I also like, I'm thinking about traveling on a train, more so than a bus or a car. And when I get on my train uh, to go into New York City on the Long Island Railroad, which is a chore these days, I always look out the window, and I pass people and homes and scenes, and I wonder what's going on in their lives. And I think think a lot about that, and that's one of the beauties of the book because you unwind lives of various people. But at the same time, they are traveling in a capsule in a sense – through the heartland of America. So there's a lot of things going on, even though they're inside a tube traveling across the country. And that's one of the thoughts that came to mind that I really appreciate what you did with this book.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, it, that's when when I, I, I'm sure everybody listening to us has actually spent a lot of time on trains. And there's that moment when you look out the window and you see uh, a little girl standing at the side of the tracks, waving at a tra- at your train going by. You see, I, I, I one of the scenes I, I rode the train that I write about, that really struck me is I was as we were going through the state of Washington, I looked out, and I saw, a a lit diner that right. could have right. been an Edward Hopper, yeah. scene and right. the people in it you know, not, maybe they weren't even aware that that we were going by in the train and most of the people on the train probably weren't aware they were there, but we all are here. And that's, that's something that's those little moments, those little moments in our lives of, of, of revelation and epiphany that we often can't put a name to, uh, can bring us joy and can give us a kind of comfort that a mere intellectualization can't.
1: So let's reset. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson, and this is what the Washington Post said in 2015 about James Grady. They compared his prose to George Orwell, and Bob Dylan. Now, if somebody said anything to me like that, I would retire right now and I would disappear in some island somewhere because I'll put that on my gravestone or wherever it's gonna be. So, I, I mean, how do you- I, I almost did. <laughs> I, I,
2: I, I, my, I, I'm reading this in the paper and I'm telling Bonnie, I said, my, my wife, Bonnie, I said, I can't, what can I do next? And I just can't. I mean, this was the this was the kindest and greatest compliment Of my professional life and one of the things that I realized is that if I've been given the chances and then and and what little talent I've been given it is uh, I owe it to the powers of the universe to keep doing the best I can with what I've got. And that's I I talked to uh, several other aging authors (laughs) who feel the same way. You know, it's it's like, yes, we, we, we don't do it for the money. We don't do it for the fame. We do it because I owe a debt to this talent I've been given. I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay it off. But boy, am I trying, you know, and it's 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 rewarding and it it makes me feel like I'm doing something right, which is something that can be an emotion that's hard to find sometimes these days.
1: So when you watch a movie, even a play, in a sense, there are different locations. I call them sets in this particular book. For me, there are three main sets in your narrative. The cabins, the dining car, and the observation car. So much happens in there that I could do a whole conversation about what happens in the cabins with the passengers and the description of the cabins. Certainly a certain strata of society that it's allowed to eat in the dining car. And then what's the beauty, going back to what you just said about seeing America pass by and the people that are strangers coming into the observation car. You want to take off on that?
2: Oh, yeah and one of the great things about the observation car on a train is the choices of the passengers who are in that car watching the world go by there is a chance for an observation car passenger to reach out to a complete and total stranger who they'll never see again and say can you? Did you see that wonderful colt loping across the, the the field? Did you see that 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 uh, that that old courthouse built by the the, the WPA project? Um, did you see that? Did you experience? And they can share what otherwise they would maybe not as enjoy as much and one of the one of the one of the things that i was very i, I very insistent upon as i was doing the plot that was that we have uh, an innocent child right in that observation car who for the very first time in his life is getting out to see and looking to see horizons that Otherwise, he would never have seen before, and that quite often many of his fellow citizens never got a chance to. And I, I, I love, I love when my characters discover something that they share, and while they technically are sharing it with each other, they're really sharing it with the reader. And because, because, because to me, fiction is about the reader. It's about it's about being honest and true to the reader, giving them not just their money's worth, but their time's worth. Right. Someone is giving a work that I spent, you know, let's say a year on. They're giving it their time. That's that that to me is that's a that's a gift to me.
1: And I treasure that deep in my bones. So I've asked this question before, and I'll bring it up again because you're talking about the readers. If you're in an audience doing a public event in a bookstore, wherever, and in this audience, let's say there are 100 people, if you get the 100 people saying the same thing about your book or you get 100 different responses for for the book, which reaction do you treasure? You know, it's...
2: Boy, that's a really great question. Uh, I, think, I think what you're hoping is that, well, because they showed up, they like it a little. Right. But you, you when you get to hear a hundred different viewpoints, you realize that, that a stranger who you'll never see again saw something in an interaction between two of your characters that related to a real-life incidents that they saw and that those those become treasures i mean i've had i've had people say well you you, you know and speaking as if obviously i'd known what i was doing well the, the way that you the way that you uh showed how a father and a son can um accidentally completely misunderstand each other was brilliant and i'm going what I no they were just going into the store for a cup of coffee you know it it but it just you really get a chance to to see the power of the written word that goes beyond the author and that goes beyond the book it goes into helping readers understand and I would ultimately say enjoy better their own lives that's that's why reading is so important that's why libraries and bookstores are so important in cultures and you can you can you can see that because the first thing that happens when the tyrants take over is they shut down the libraries and bookstores and keep them out of anything that makes anybody think you
1: know right so this is, this is one of my thoughts a thought bubble i'm having right now um, there was a great movie called the three amigos this is my take off my analysis of your book because there's three strangers that come together ross nora and graham i call them the three amigos because they're kind of thrown together but each of them are fascinating in their own right and what you did in terms of bringing them together because once again i'm being redundant they were strangers but they come together in a very dramatic way that drives no pun intended because I want to train the narrative down the tracks.
2: Yeah, and what's amazing about your your comment was you just illustrated what we we had finished talking about where I had never thought of them as the three amigos and the moment you said that everything from from that wonderful movie Came roaring through to me, and it did so um, on the horse of uh, or on or on on this train with these with with my three central characters. Um, that's that's what's great about a podcast like yours is you you help people make connections like that, and and I I I, I you're really... Your readers, your readers, your listeners better appreciate the opportunity you're giving.
1: That's all I have to say. I I appreciate those comments. Hopefully nobody will let that comment out because Chris is next to me and he's kind of smiling, so we'll keep it in the podcast. So I want to learn something every time I read, and I know very little about money because I don't have a whole lot, and about the U.S. Mint. So evidently there's a U.S. Mint in Seattle, and it's another one in Chicago so Federal in Reserve Banks. Federal Reserve Banks. Thank you very much. So they're transporting um, old money from one place to the other. And that's a really interesting part of the plot because it involves a lot of people. And I want. can you just kind of amplify on that? Because I didn't know. I, well, I guess I learned from reading your book they take all this old money and they burn it. Is that
2: accurate? Oh, it, it's astonishing. I mean, you, you, when you think about it, we've been printing – dollar bills that that we could still pass account uh, across the counters from the 1920s right and you, you know it, i it, when i change my 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 pants i pull out the bills that i i had been carrying for a week and they're already looking pretty ragged something has to happen to them in a way that protects our financial security and what what we do is we actually burn them. I think, and I think they might be moving now to some uh, composting system, but we're, you know, we're still a little bit behind. And the Federal Reserve Banks, in, I think it's 11 different cities, um, are actually the primary source for that. Now, completely coincidentally, the Federal Reserve Bank in Seattle where the plot starts, in real life, was being completely rehabbed hmm. when I showed up to take the the, 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 the the train to Chicago and to begin my fictional journey. I thought this, I almost thought that, well,
1: boy, <laughs> that's <laughs> a sign from the cosmos, you yep, know? Yeah. So when I was a young man, I just graduated high school. I took all my bar mitzvah money, which was not a lot, and I bought a bus ticket, from New York to California. Oh. 66 hours on a bus. And we—and why I mention it is because I was on the bus the whole time. You can get off for stops and everything, but people get on, right. they get off. And what I thought about, and this is kind of tangential, is I love Roots, the TV show Roots, because oh. certain people disappear after they move along through the, the whole story, Haley's story in the TV series. And I always wondered... What happens to the people that are left behind? And you have a couple of characters actually get off the train before they're getting into Chicago. One woman with a dog, which is a key element, and, and somebody else. And I, and I wonder, I wonder if you wonder, as the creator of these characters, what happens to them when they leave the train?
2: You know, that's, that's fascinating because I know these people continue on with their lives. And it's maybe you become author these people become part of your family part even the bad guys right you you become attached to and if they survive the situation you put them in you have to have created them in such a way that they could go on and have other lives and and um the woman i had to leave in in shelby montana which was by the way my hometown um, with her, with her tragically murdered dog, um, I hope for her. Okay. That's that's that, that that. I just I just hope that she she finds solace and a better few years. But I I can't tell you because because I was on the train that pulled out of town with everybody else. But see, that's the sense of
1: wonder. This is the way that I think about books and how they resonate with me. I've talked about this before. If it's 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm up still thinking about the book that I'm reading or the interview I'm going to do, and after I'm done reading it and it stays with me, that's a success. Oh, yeah. That I don't know mm-hmm. how you react to that, but for me, if I'm still thinking about that, way beyond I'm done with what I'm doing, prep work and the conversations that we have, And it's still there in my brain, boy, that's a really good book.
2: The the idea that you can live on and that your work can live on in the consciousness of one of your readers is the ultimate prayer of any author. And that's, I I have a thousand books who who are, are swirling around in
1: my head right now. So we end every segment with something that I call, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? Before we go to the break to the next guest. So James Grady, the book is this train. What did I miss? What did I get wrong?
2: I think what I missed was a little more time spent with the, the, the secondary characters, the people that you would pass walking on the way to to uh, the dining car, and I think what I got wrong was I think there would have been more um, I don't know how I'd call it more more efforts by the the unnamed characters to help the train moved forward in the way it was supposed to even as all these strange and and sometimes terrible things were happening i hope that i haven't missed anything more than that and i hope that i was able to bring a vision of love and hope out there for all the readers in america
1: so let's recap george orwell bob dylan james grady in the same sentence on my podcast, Artful Periscope. Thank you so much, James.
2: Thank you for having me, and thank you to everyone out there who's listening to you today and tomorrow.
1: After the break, Jerry Stall joins the conversation. The memoirs called 999. One man's tale of de- depression, psychic torment, and a Bus tour of the Holocaust. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. Be right back.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. A quick story, a very short story before Jerry Stahl joins us to talk about his new book, 999. A few years ago, this is, when I walk into a room, I always wonder, do I leave an impression, does anybody remember me? A few years ago, I did an event with some writers at a beautiful theater on Long Island called the Madison Theater. And one of the writers there was George Pelicanos. And I walk into the green room to introduce myself because he'd been on my radio program and he'd been on my television program. And I walk in and say, hi, I'm Larry Davidson. And it's a blank look across his face. Talk about leaving a lasting impression, he never remembered me and that's okay. Because my next guest, who I'm going to give a proper introduction to, let's do that now, is the author of 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. I'm talking about Jerry Stahl. The reason why I tell that short story, because many years ago, Mr. Stahl came out to the east end of Long Island for my summer series called Writers in the Vine. And he was one of my guests, and the book was called I, Fatty. So, Jerry, if you don't remember me, join the crowd. I'm not insulted, but I loved you then, and I look forward to the conversation now. So welcome to the podcast.
3: Larry, I remember like it was yesterday, and I'm so glad to uh, see your face again.
1: So one of the things I want to mention, because it, this is a wonderful movie based on your best, previous best-selling memoir, Permanent Midnight, and was made into a film starring Ben Stiller. So do you have any memories about that movie, and were you happy with it?
3: listen, I'm, I'm nothing but grateful for that movie. Um, aside from the fact that Ben was phenomenal in the movie, you know, I, I gained the best friend. You know, Ben and I have stayed tight. I was best man at the wedding, at his wedding, and uh, he just hosted an event uh, interviewing me at the 92nd Street Y. And as for the movie itself, uh, you know, I, I didn't write it, so I was kind of a, a different kind of idiot in the movie than I was in the book. But that being said, I thought Ben pulled off his tanker's role really, really brilliantly.
1: So, Jerry, I'm a big fan of podcasts. When I drive, when I work out, I listen to podcasts. My go-to podcast is WTF Mark Maron, and I'm listening to it the other day, and I believe you're going to be on a guest on a future episode of WTF. Can you just talk about your relationship with Mark? I think you and him are brothers from a different mother. Jewish background. A lot of things you say are unfiltered. But when he talks to somebody and he gets them comfortable and he knows everybody, quite honestly, in terms of comedy and movies and music and everything else, they really relax. But I'm curious about your relationship with him because I think you're very similar in points of view and how honest you are about your life and lives.
3: Well, listen, that's a hell of a guy to be compared to. He and I go way back. I, I knew Mark before he actually started the podcast and he was kind of looking for a way to move forward, you know, in the business. And he essentially invented the form, you know? Many people will say they did, but I think he was one of the first. And uh, yeah, Mark comes from a very honest, unfiltered is a good word, because hey, who needs a filter? And I think the genius of that is anybody who knows him, like you say, he feels relaxed because this is a guy who's not trying to look good. No, you're getting the unvarnished real with him. And uh, for better or worse, I'm kind of the same way on
1: the page. So you started this book. It's a memoir, it's serious, but I also think it's funny. And your observations are so acute. So hopefully, I'll get to explore that. But you started the book in 2016 and you finished in 2021. Why the gap there between when you started and when you finished?
3: That gap is a subject of the book itself, which is the book was driven originally as a six-part series in Vice online magazine. And then I came back from doing that the the tour of the Holocaust, which is everything you would think that would be. Right. But then, you know, I was going through consider my life, and uh, things weren't great, pops down sideways, and I just found it hard to write, and eventually that becomes the subject, you know, the fact that you're having a hard time writing, and the subject of the book in a way, and what drove me to the trip was depression and despair, the idea being, why not go to a place where despair and depression is probably more appropriate than anywhere on earth, which, which, which is concentration camps, and bring that with you and and see if that in any way um, mitigates the despair or explains it to you. And uh, what I realized is I went to the camps, this profound feeling. And on some level I did, when you walk into Auschwitz, and you're ready, you know, you've seen the pictures, you've seen the photographs, movies we all know the iconic horrific gimmicks and the first thing I see is the Auschwitz snack bar Right, the people sitting out there having pizza and Santa and it's like wait this is not the experience I thought I would have but on another level it's like I went to see humanity at its worst and you know I got humanity
1: so I think about the great Hunter S. Thompson and the, sure. and the books that he wrote, The Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So I'm going to just kind of turn that around. And I think about your book, and I don't want to diminish it, but it kind of reminds me of Fear and Loathing on a tour bus in Poland and Germany, because you are taking us through Poland and Germany. And it's an interesting slice of life. And if I'm incorrect, let me know. Uh, you're on a bus with a bunch of strangers, and you're not even comfortable being on a bus, and where you sit is really important to you. So I kind of picked up on that. You want people, you mm. want to be in the front, you want to be in the back. And once again, this is <laughs> you unfiltered, and I appreciate that.
3: Well, it's unfiltered in the sense that uh, my real terror, to be honest, was as much from having to be on a bus with a bunch of people I didn't know. I mean, there's this whole other subculture and, you know, I love writing about subcultures of, of people who are, let's just say, not rich, who just travel the world after they reach their retirement, taking bus tours, guided tours. One guy's Finger Lakes, and then he's going to Auschwitz, and then he's going to Ireland, you know? And it's just this great world. And some of these people, I know this because we had to go around the room the night of the tour, like before the tour began, to say why we were doing this. and. People said things like, uh, "Well, I've never seen a Jew, but I admire the Jewish people, you know." Or, "I saw Schindler's List," or "I watch the History Channel a lot, and I'm fascinated with Nazis." And, you know, initially I might have felt very judgmental, like, "Jesus, what have I gotten myself into?" But by the end, I grew to love these. I grew to love these characters. And, you know, my theory of journalism is always uh, uh, make yourself. The biggest. Uh, what is the language uh, situation on this? Are we in a? Uh,
1: you can do. You
3: can use like, the language. I just wanted to say, is make yourself the biggest asshole in the book, you know, and then you uh, you're not trying to look good. You're trying to be honest, and I clearly, I think, achieved that in this. And um, a lot of these people just hadn't hadn't had the experience of meeting a Jewish person. A lot of very nice people from the Midwest. A couple of people from Australia. And uh, seeing the camp through their eyes as well as mine was quite a revelation.
1: So I want to jump around because part of this book is about your journey on this this bus, this luxury tour bus or coach bus, whatever they call it. And part of that is, once again, is just your memories in certain points of your life. And you raise a few names I want to talk about, if you don't mind. And if I leave something, I'll just throw it in anyway because you're much more interesting interesting than I can ever I remember, if you're a certain age, Oscar Levent. Oh,
3: my God. I wrote a movie about him. And this this is interesting
1: because I've been watching on Amazon Prime, The Marvelous Mrs. Mm -hmm. Maisel. So if if you're a certain age, it's all about a Jewish life. And it's a little snippet there where she's watching on the TV, some talk show, and he's on it. And no the, kidding. And the thing that I always thought about him, I thought about after a while when he was falling apart mentally, because he was brilliant, yeah. he had a wit, that he was just there for people to laugh at. And that bothered really, me. And, that, yeah. and I'm going to mention another name because nobody's going to remember this guy. His name was Stanley Siegel. And for a while, he had a talk show in New York, and he always ended the talk show. Nobody ever did this before in the last part of his show, he'd get on the couch and let himself be analyzed. So I think of Stanley Siegel, and I think of Oscar Levant, and I think about the fact that you're throwing this kind of ethos into your book, and I thank you for that.
3: Well, thank you. Oscar Levant uh, actually had a talk show in Los Angeles where he would take an ambulance from the uh, Edgemont Mental Asylum where he was living to the talk show. And half the reason people would watch was to see if he was going to collapse that day. Right. But he was the most quotable guy on earth. He he said things like, uh, I knew Doris day before she was a virgin. You know? Uh, And he was on a show, he was on the Jack Parnas show. Uh, And he said, I get plenty of exercise, you know, once a week, I take a walk and fall into a coma. You know, he he was very self-deprecating, clearly tortured a genius piano player, a great actor, and hated himself. And he hated himself live on air. And he was, even before Lenny Bruce brought drug addiction into the national conversation, he was on TV saying, you know, it's delicious, it's delightful, it's a lot of, you know? For those of you who don't know, liver is out there, a, a very hard narcotic. And he was also the first person to introduce the concept of neurosis. Even use the word on television. So he was a pioneer, even if it might have been involuntary. And I, I love the fact that you you know this guy. Then, you know, speaking of still, we wrote a movie together recently. He was going to try and play him, like many things in Hollywood, it fell through. But uh, I guess you do have to be of a certain age. He wrote a great book called Memoirs of an Amnesia. Actors. Right, <laughs> the influence on me as a kid.
1: So I'm going to mention somebody else because. There's a theme of suicide running through this book, in a sense. Mark Maron talks about, and he says something really interesting when he has suicide ideations. He says, I don't want to kill myself. I just want to know I can if I want to. And that's quintessential Mark Maron. And I've, <laughs> I've known uh, five people personally that have committed suicide. So yeah. that in a sense, Sorry, man. well, it's, it, it, that fascinates me. But it, it kind of runs through. And I've got to mention Anthony Bourdain and Neurosis also a very gifted storyteller his program on cnn was much more than about food it was about life his life he was he's like you he's like mark unfiltered will say a lot of stuff experimented with a lot of things food drink alcohol drugs everything else but it was a uh, and i and i guess people don't understand why that day he was on location shooting another episode for i guess for a new season what was he thinking i believe you do know him pretty well did know him pretty well
3: yeah i knew anthony pretty well he actually said uh, in in the new york times uh he did a, they have a session called by the book where he sort of condemned me in a way he in a, in a beautiful way he said you know if i if i when i die you know they asked him who he would like to write his uh obituary or the tell-all you know about his life he said i'd like jerry saw to do it if he would get it and uh I refused to do that because it felt very exploitative after the, you know, at the moment. And everybody else suddenly came out of the woodwork and became his best friend, uh, retroactively. And right. I, I just let it go. But uh, he was one of the most stand-up guys I ever met. You could call, if you needed something, you could text him. And five minutes later, you would get, get a response from your away, you know, wherever the hell he was. One of the most amazingly kind people I ever met, maybe too kind to deserve.
1: So let's reset. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Jerry Stahl, who may remember me, may not have remembered me, but he's being very kind. I remember you going way back to Writers in the Vine. His new book is called Nine Nine Nine. So when I found out by reading the book, the genesis of the title and it's spelled N-E-I-N, 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 subtitle, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. Where does the title come from in terms of your personal life?
3: Well, I'll try to keep this clean, but at uh, one point in my life, um, I, uh, like many, like many a former bar mitzvah boy, you know, I had an affair with a, uh, with a German woman with an incredible accent. And uh, we were in the middle of uh, doing what we were doing, and suddenly out of nowhere, she screamed, nine, 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 being fucked by a chew. And that always stuck in my head. As, how could it not? And uh, so that's where the title came from. Thank you for letting me explain that. And the funny sort of code of that story is that the actress in the movie who played this, this lovely woman, Connie Wilson, we couldn't get her to scream. It was so offensive and so not in her character that it just was a bit more of a mild take. But uh, aside from that sort of inside baseball backstory, I just thought it was a funny title. You know, I thought it explained the feeling I had being over in in not Where if you see a 95-year-old man across the room at breakfast or the Gobbling sausage, you know, and having his first time of the day. He's looking at you. It's just possible you're Jewish, paranoid like myself. And if you're not paranoid, like, all of them help help you along. Uh, like, I wonder if, like, when he was, you know, 70 years ago or right, right. he was a kid, if he was like bayonetting babies, fun, you know, because this is where it happened. And that is a sense that I didn't expect to have because I didn't know it existed. I couldn't shake it all over. And, uh,
1: so people that read the book, uh, do a Google search on you, are going to realize um, you are highly, highly intelligent, very well read. Your cultural references are something worth worth reading the book for and doing some more research on you. And you, in a part of the book, you said, stop reading this book, pick down this story. And I'm going to mention the story because... Uh, Once again, I believe you were – the book takes – this is the part of the book in Auschwitz. And the writer is a Polish director named Borowski, I believe. And the story is this way for the gas, ladies and gentlemen. And you said everybody should find this story and read it. Tell us about this story.
3: He was a uh, man who was condemned to the camps with his wife. And uh, they both survived. And he came out. And he wrote a story. It's it's very hard to even describe it. It's funny. It's heartbreaking. It's deeply felt. It's it's surreal. It's all the things you might expect. But like the the strange thing is, Larry, like Primo Levy, another brilliant author who survived the camps.
2: This man came
3: out, Ralke, and subsequently writes a brilliant book and kills himself. Right. And the same thing happened. Who made the disturbing point that the people who survived the camps weren't the best people, the most worthy people? So it kind of begs the question is there something about survivors' guilt in that situation that is so profound and so just impenetrable and, and impossible to shake? That thing?
1: Now, over the course of my career, like many other people, I've interviewed Holocaust survivors, and the one thing I took away from that, Thomas Blatt, I interviewed multiple times. At the time, interviewing he's one of the last living survivors of Sobibor, which was a death camp. And yeah. so, sitting across from him and listening to him talk and everything else was illuminating. And I and I think about the movie The Pawnbroker, 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 excuse me. And what I take away from that and him, he was much more comfortable talking to me about what he experienced than about family members. And I wonder if you had the same experience and you're on a bus with strangers and they're sharing intimate thoughts with you and you with them. Is it easier to talk with a stranger than tell a family member and loved ones what you witnessed and experienced and survived?
3: What an interesting question. I, I guess being a journalist, just in general, I'm more interested in your story than mine. Uh, and are you saying that this gentleman didn't want to talk about his own family or was more comfortable talking to you than his own family? Just so I understand your question.
1: Talking about his experiences in the Holocaust as a survivor mm-hmm. at Sobibor at that time when the last living survivors, he since passed away. Right. He was talking he, well. he to me about it, but not necessarily all the details about, with it with his family
3: that's fascinating that that is an angle i hadn't heard but if you think about it it makes it makes perfect sense because one you, you imagine if you're talking about yourself you can kind of control the emotional temperature and you know the, the means by which you're telling the story but if you're talking about your loved ones you know your children your parents your brothers sisters that's, that's got to be impossible to talk about that makes perfect sense
1: and once again, going back to Rod Steiger in, in The Pawnbroker, he suffered with his loss and was very, very in trouble for the rest of his life, as the movie portrays, but it's a brilliant movie. And once again, it was a br- brilliant portrayal of what his flashbacks and his life selling things in a pawn shop, which is very, very minimal life. And this is the life he had based on what he survived. It's a fascinating juxtaposition to where he was and where he became later on as, I guess, as a businessman. You have very acute observations I'm going to share another one going back to Auschwitz and leave anything out, just throw stuff in because...
3: No, I I like the way you're doing this interview because, you know, I I was a drug addict for many years and even after getting clean, one of the gifts that never came back, if I ever had it, was linear thinking. So jumping all over the place feels much more comfortable to me.
1: So So I'm I'm, going to do another jump and then I'll go back to my intended question. Um, we hear about drug addicts, and you had a very serious heroin problem. That the gateway drug is always going to be reefer madness, marijuana. Was your gateway drug twenty-seven Twinkies at one point? <laughs>
3: uh, well, I did indeed eat many a Twinkie on the uh, before my father's funeral. I was just shoving things into anything that can stuff the feeling, you know, whatever it is. I think my gateway drug was just depression. Oh, I, I believe just my personal experience, I'm not a preacher, I'm not an advocate, let to say I'm just an expert on my own history. Uh, I would say that uh, addiction, it, it, it's a disease of loneliness, right. a disease of depression. Whether you get there fast lane, right, the, the heroin or coke or crack, or whether you take the slow route and smoke weed for a while and then end up there, it's really irrelevant. The Substance is the least relevant thing the discussion. It's the feelings that you're trying not to feel that so really matter. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, and there's no bad answer. Like I told about pe- people in pizza, there's no bad pizza. Just some pizza is better than others, which is very true. If you live in New York, there's great pizza. Some places, then, the 99-cent slice is not great, but it's really cheap. But this is, this is a very acute observation Once again, referring back to being on the grounds of Auschwitz. And you said, when standing on the grounds, all preconceived notions about the place are erased. Now, we do know, this is me now saying, a lot of lives were erased in the concentration camps, Dachau, uh, Auschwitz, once again, Sobibor. So that observation says something about you. You had an idea going there then standing on the grounds and that is so visceral your description your notions change so what changed when you witnessed and had that experience
3: nothing really prepares you for it and the, the gut feeling i had that on one level you know your soul crushed with the revelation of course but on a lover on another it's almost i felt that even thinking i could comprehend the enormity of the pain you know, their pain, the prisoner's pain, the victim's pain, that's almost um, disrespectful to the dead because I don't know that I can, you know? And needless to say, other people have written about this, movies, books, memoirs, and uh, far be it from me to think I have something new to say. But I, I, I do know that that sense of, Standing essentially on the bones of the dead, you know, breathing air that was once filled with the ashes, you know, of the newly, newly, uh, you know, the newly ovened, is uh, it's about as deep as it gets, and that's why the juxtaposition of that with people taking selfies and snarfing up their calzones and Coke. It's, it's it's so, it just rips your mind in half because I wasn't prepared for it. I thought I would walk in and instantly have the revelation of a lifetime. I get announced and the first thing I see is they say is people eating pizza and drinking sandwiches. So, which do you want to feel the most? You know, I don't think we have control over our reaction. All I ever tried to do is chronicle them in a way that I hope is relatable to other people.
1: So, Jerry Stahl, we always end every segment with what did I miss? What did I get wrong? In the time remaining, what did I miss? What did I get wrong in terms of our conversation about your book, 999?
3: Well, if you got anything wrong, I think it's thinking that there is a way to get something wrong. I mean, listen, I'm honored that you went through the book and picked out these these sections that uh, hit you. I mean, let me ask you a question. If if you made it through this book, was there anything in it that just really uh, hit you differently or really affected you in a way you weren't expecting?
1: I kind of expected that. What hit me is what's happening today in America with anti-Semitism. Yeah. We are recording this for a future episode, but the other day there was a shooting in Highland Park in largely a Jewish community. And I think about... When Hillary Clinton ran for president of the United States, they were using an ad against that had all the tropes. I think of anti-Semitism today, blood and treasure, all the things that are going on in America. That if you were a Jew in America, it is still a dangerous time, and that ties into Jews in the time frame you write about. Jews during the Holocaust and those Jews who are Americans today wondering what could happen to me where I live as we speak.
3: Absolutely true. And I think the the, the lesson there is that it is never safe to be a Jew. I, I have a 94-year-old aunt who uh, attends Temple at the Tree of Life in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, you know, when all that went down. and. It, it's like my grandfather used to say. I had a grandfather who escaped from the Tsar's army and made it to America. And he always said, if you ever forget you're a Jew, a Gentile, what we you. you." And it is a dangerous thing to be reminded of these days. You are absolutely right.
1: So thank you for turning it around. Uh, I usually don't get asked questions, but I appreciate that. Usually I get to ask the question, and not answer the questions, but ask the questions. My guess is Jerry Stahl. The book is called 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment and a bus tour of the Holocaust. And also thank you very much for James Grady joining us in the first episode, talk about his first segment, by the way, of this episode, talking about his book, This Train. Jerry Stoll, thank you so much.
3: Pleasure was all mine. It's great to see you again.
1: I'm Larry Davidson until next time. Bye-bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisifaro. Sound editors and engineers Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.